Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Time would have allowed. These four verses would have been included last week. They really are part of the same thought. In fact, as you know, this is a sermon of sorts, a Christ-centered sermon, the book of Hebrews. And so, to do it justice, it's meant to be read as a whole, so we can follow the flow that the author uh, is following or leading us in. And so keep in mind that what we have here is really coming off of the verses that precede it. It's a following up or it's completing the thought, you might say. And this is important because the flow to this point has been as follows. This constant uh, depiction of Jesus as who he is, the superior one to everything that has preceded him, the fulfiller of all these things. But then it pauses in chapter 5, the author does, to say, you've become dull, so I've got I've to hold up before I go any deeper about Jesus. Remember, he was starting to compare Jesus with Melchizedek, this mysterious character in the Old Testament. But he had to stop and say, you're not going to get this because you're dull of hearing now. So I've got to pause for a moment, and in a sense, I've got to rebuke you, the community, the, the covenant community, that is the, the elected or chosen community that God works through to save people. And so he stops and says, you know, there are some who have tasted it all. They look like they're true members, but in the end, they proved that they were not. They were members of the church, the elected community, but their individual election showed to not be true. Sober. It could leave someone discouraged. Maybe that was part of the reaction you had in hearing those first eight verses. So verses 9 through 12 really give a follow-up to this. Remember, this text is not written to one who is an apostate, one who has departed. This text is for the faithful who are struggling or are comforted in Christ and need continual encouragement and motivation to keep on in this race that we are running. So this speaks to us in clear terms. Look at God's word as I read Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, those are the sober words that precede, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray. O Lord, as the psalmist has written, so we ask this morning, teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We give thanks to you, O Lord our God, with our whole hearts, and we will glorify your name forever. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The scripture uses various metaphors for the Christian life. Probably the most popular one that we think of is the one that Paul used frequently. That is, the Christian life is like a race. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul is recorded as saying, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my race and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul uses this metaphor often. Think in terms of what Paul would have thought when he said race. He says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable one. How much better the race is that we run. Paul, in his last days, writes to the young pastor Timothy, the pastor at the church of Ephesus, and says this in 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we'll get there, but the metaphor is used again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now keep in mind, in every one of these instances, there's a reference to race in the mind of the writer. And it's different than a sprint. It's true, there were 50-meter runs and 100-meter runs. There were things like that in those days. But you notice the words endurance? Paul, at the end of his life, says, I have run the race. It's a reference to something more than just a sprint. And we've got to get our minds in that, in that thought pattern, brothers and sisters. It's, it's not a sprint we're running. It's not a sprint. It's, it, it's like a marathon. Now, a marathon did not come till long after this time. But you know what a marathon is, and it's a good picture of what the Christian life really is. It's a race, but it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Marathon is 26.2 miles. And if you are mildly in shape, it would still take you 26 weeks to prepare to run 26.2 miles. A lot of thought goes into it. It's not like a sprint. Most of us could probably run a sprint at any time. We might keel over at the end of it, but we could do it. 26.2 miles. You don't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to run a marathon. You have to train thoughtfully, attentively. What you eat makes a difference. When you eat it, how you build up towards it. Everything about it is thoughtful, and it takes time. And in the course of running the marathon, there are ups and there are downs. The terrain is never flat. Or you might have a bad 14th mile, but have a better 18th mile. And it's this long-haul approach that really tests us. That's the Christian life. That's the way the Scripture depicts the Christian life, as a marathon, not a sprint. That is crucial. It's important. It was important for the reader here to understand that correctly. It's my guess that what was happening is many were converting to Christ, or at least making a profession in Christ. But then the pressure came on. Persecution came on them. And they started weighing, boy, it was better when I was Jewish. Why am I doing this? And they renounce. They go back. Now, they showed that they weren't really of them. They showed that they were not... They were leaving the profession. But certainly there were those who were in the midst of the covenant community looking at these people departing and personally struggling. Does God not recognize what we're dealing with? How come my life hasn't gotten better all of a sudden? I profess Christ. How come it's still tough? How come this problem hasn't immediately gone away? And they think in terms of a sprint. Now, maybe that's your case. Maybe God has made you aware of something and you've repented of it. You don't know why everything isn't just better right now rather than seeing that the constant image in Scripture is a marathon. It's a long haul. It's a relationship that goes on throughout the entirety of our existence. There's no, short to no shortcut to spiritual maturity. There's no quick ascent to being made complete in Christ. There's no instant in the concept of discipleship. What we learn here in this conclusion to this bigger section of Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, is that faith and patience over the long haul, steady plotting, you might say, 
are what produce confidence or a growing confidence in your standing with the Lord, your relationship with the Lord. Please hear this. I think that's the message that is given to us. In fact, verse 9 serves as a kind of transition. It challenges us to consider what our reaction was to the first eight verses. Look at the verse, verse 9, and ask yourself, what was your reaction to those first eight verses, those sober and serious words that we read last week and studied? Verse 9 says, though we speak in this way, referring to those sober and somber words, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Please understand what's being said. Now that we've made clear, the author says, that there are some in the covenant community who are not really members of Christ. Now that they're gone in that sense, listen, those of you who are still here, those who are faithful, those who are listening, and you're reacting. Now, you might be discouraged a bit, but you're reacting to the message. Listen, you're loved, beloved. We feel sure of better things for you. Are you touched? Are you moved by what the Spirit of God has brought about in His Word and convicted you with? In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, let's now get on with this marathon, with this race we are running together. They're words of assurance to those who have been affected by the message the first eight verses have given. Now, I want to ask you, how did you react to those eight verses as you have read them before? And if you weren't with us, those first eight verses are some of the most discussed in the history of the church because it implies that there are some who could actually be saved, or at least it could be taken this way, and then lose that. But when you search it out and look at it holistically, you understand the context is that God has elected a community to bring forth his individually elect people. And so it's talking in terms of the covenant community and those who are departing from their confession that makes them part of that covenant community. So these are heavy words for those who are still sitting there in the pews wondering, Am I, could I do that? He's saying relax and recognize that this is a long haul, slow and steady wins this race. What was your reaction? When you heard the message of the first eight verses, could you care less? These we speak, uh, though we speak in, these way, in this way, did you just not care when you heard those words? Did you reject the sober warning by saying it's not true? I'm not trusting it. Well, if that someone is you, if you heard the message of the first eight verses and simply don't care, that indicates that you're spiritually dead. And unless the Spirit of God breathes life into you, you won't get this message. In fact, the message really isn't written to someone who's spiritually dead. It's written to spur on those who are in the faith, to stimulate the faithful. For you who are truly Christians, that you might react to these eight verses by pursuing spiritual maturity. Remember, that's what the danger is, by staying stagnant, by not pursuing spiritual maturity. Are you comforted or were you comforted by hearing the words of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8? And remember what comfort is for the Christian. It doesn't mean you're comforted because you've done good. It's comforted because you know you are in Christ, because Christ holds you. And as I have already said, as a, a child is secure in the hands of his parents, may look at the tragedy and the things that happen around and, and feel terrible about it, but recognize their own security being held by Christ. Were you comforted by hearing the words of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8? Though we speak in this way, as the author says here in verse 9. How about conviction? Were you convicted and then did you change? In other words, did conviction come upon you for some particular point of rebellion in your own life that you recognize clearly, could see as dangerous in your life, could see as stunting your growth in Christ, and you react in such a way as to put that out of your life or begin the struggle against it? 
Were you convicted and changed? Did you repent? Perfectly, that was one of the reactions that, was, that came of last week's message of the first eight verses. I think for all of us, by the way, in the Christian life, we go through times of being comforted and convicted, comforted and convicted. That's the normal course of the marathon that we run. But there's, an other, uh, there's still another reaction that I want to mention because I think this is at the back of the pastoral mind of the writer here. Are you convicted, then discouraged? In other words, you see it, you recognize it, you understand there's something that needs changing in your life. You recognize a, a dangerous course that you have taken, yet you struggle with victory over it, and you wonder, why, God, have you not just given me immediate release from this? And you grow discouraged when you hear a message that's convicting. Instead of growing uh, convicted and then change, you get discouraged and depressed. I think there's a forecasting of this kind of reaction in verse 9. That's why it's worded the way it is. Look again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It's giving us a longer view, salvation, ultimate salvation. The text continues in verse 10 where we see something crucial for all of us to grasp and understand. God knows and cares about your motive for service. Look at verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that, that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. In other words, don't grow discouraged. Yes, there is the tragedy of people who break covenant, people you love that are in the midst of us. But don't grow discouraged. Rather, react positively to God's sober warning in this text. God is not unjust as to overlook your work. He knows he's fair. God is totally fair. He's just. He's omniscient. He knows. He recognizes your efforts. Recognize this, that we are not just while God is totally just. And it's important to recognize the difference because every one of you who is a parent, and if you've been a child, as all of us have been, we know our parents tried to be just. We as parents tried to be just. But sometimes we mess up. We catch the wrong one. It happens. You know, with many light brown heads running around, they all can look similar at times, and you bust the wrong one. It, that child has a sense of injustice that comes from their parents when they do that. We don't mean to do it. We just do it at times. God never does that. He never looks at what you do in secret and ignores it or miss it somehow. He always is just. He knows your motives, too. He knows your heart. He knows why you do what you do. So there's no running and hiding. There's no feeling like, God, didn't you notice what I did? God sees it all. There's nothing that escapes him. And he comes at it with complete fairness, unlike us, who try hard and try as we might. We can't be completely just. But God is not so unjust as to overlook your work, it says in verse 10. He can discern our very motives. Now, I want to pause for a minute. Do you catch this? What is the mark of pursuing spiritual maturity? After all, that's the overall imperative, is to pursue spiritual maturity. The mark that the author says we should look for is serving God by serving others. Now, I would have thought it had been any, other any of a number of other things. You know, marks of spiritual maturity. The way you can uh, defend the faith. Uh, how much theology you know. How many people you know, and how many are you influencing for Jesus, so to speak. But it says in very simple terms that the main way that you can mark whether you're on, spiritual, uh, on a course of spiritual maturity is how you serve God by serving others. That, that's what it says. 
That's different than what you might have thought, naturally. And so you ask the question, as I ask the question, who am I serving? Am I serving others? Who am I really serving? Are you serving yourself or are you serving God? And these are really pointed questions that we all have to ask ourselves. Now, maybe you're in the category of of admitting, hey, I'm just living for myself. I am who I care about right now, and that's the way it is. Most people don't fall in that category, especially in the church. You'll hear that sometimes out in the world. But mostly, people in the church are just are, are too savvy to say that. So what they do instead, and maybe none of you ever do this or slip into this, is they serve other people because it looks like they're serving other people, but they're really serving themselves. Now, how, how can that be? Here's the test. If you do something for someone else and are really put off because they didn't give you a thank you card, you're doing it for yourself. If you are serving others and you're really upset that they did not appreciate you enough, you're doing it for yourself. Now, I'm not saying someone shouldn't be that mindful or shouldn't be that uh, responsive. I agree, that would be a good trait for someone to have. But if you're doing it for Christ, then you don't care if you get a thank you card for it. There's a big difference here. That's how we know if we're serving Christ or if we're serving ourselves. And it can look really sanctified in the church. Because we're serving everybody. But if you're burning out in your service, it's probably because you're really serving yourself. If you came away from this week of EBS and say, I never want to do that again, it's probably because the focus was not on serving God, right? Hey, we all deal with that at some level. Don't get me wrong. But recognize over the long haul, the reason why we do what we do It's because God has given us an outlet to serve him by serving others. And this is supernatural. This is not something you can muster on your own. He knows about your motive for service. In fact, this is really at the heart of what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, when he says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That's the way we serve Christ. What can help you is it helps me is that especially when you're dealing with someone that may be difficult. Not that you would ever be difficult for anyone else, but you know those difficult people to you. Are you serving them or are you serving Jesus? It's a fundamental question we ask ourselves when we want to know who we're serving. Because at its heart, when we're serving God, that shows that there's this maturing process that the Holy Spirit is working in us. And it happens by serving others. J.I. Packer writes profoundly in one of his books. I want to share this with you because I think he's a very wise man in the Lord. And he captures this idea of service. That is, we're serving God by serving others. Hear what Packer says. He says, what work does Christ set his servants to do? The way that they serve him, he tells them, is by becoming the slaves of their fellow servants and being willing to do literally anything however costly, irksome, or undignified, in order to help them. This is what love means. As he himself showed at the Last Supper when he played the slave's part and washed the disciples' feet. When the New Testament speaks of ministering to the saints, it means not primarily preaching to them, but devoting time, trouble, and substance to giving them all the practical help possible. The essence of Christian service is loyalty to the king 
expressing itself in care for his servants. Only the Holy Spirit can create in us the kind of love towards our Savior that will overflow in imaginative sympathy and practical helpfulness towards his people. Unless the Spirit is training us in love, we are not fit persons to go to college or a training class to seminary or someplace to learn the know-how of particular branches of Christian work. Gifted leaders who are self-centered and loveless are a blight to the church rather than a blessing. That's the primary way the world knows us, by our love for one another. Love expressing itself in service, that's how you know if you're maturing. So don't worry about how long it takes you to run a marathon. It takes some people five hours. It takes some people three hours. Some people in record time, two hours or less. That's not the concern. Are you running against someone? Are you running against your own will in a marathon? Just completing it's the victory. So don't worry where you are, how smart you are, how theologically literate you are, how you fit in. Where are you in your service to others? That's what the text challenges us with. Not any other litmus test. Are you pouring yourself out for others? as Christ has poured himself out for us. Paul, following his example, poured himself out as a drink offering. God knows and cares about your motive for service. If you're stuck in your Christian life, start serving someone else. See how that changes things. Serve your wife. Serve your husband. Serve your children. Serve your church family. And I know there's an order of things as they occur, but break the order every once in a while and and serve someone. Serve your child. Serve someone else. Work in the nursery. Teach a class. Labor at Vacation Bible School. Make a meal for a family. Babysit someone's children. Call someone to encourage them during the week. Take someone to lunch. Don't sit around and wish that someone called you. You call them. Mow someone's lawn. Give financially to help someone who needs it. Take regular time to pray for the church and individual members. Go to Juarez. Do some other local mission. Get involved with some outreach that's beyond yourself. Do whatever menial task you can, but do it for Christ. Are you doing this for God or for self? It's a question only you can really answer, especially in the midst of the church. But your life will change if your focus begins to be God and serving him by serving others. In fact, in this same vein, we come to verse 11, where we see also... What is true of the Christian life, this race we are running, this marathon we are in, diligence in your walk with the Lord builds assurance of salvation. One of the main questions that comes up from a text like Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 is, have I committed this sin or am I secure? And recognize that one of the ways God gives us assurance of salvation is as we obey him and we grow and exercise that obedience, we grow in our confidence of our salvation, our place in Christ. Look at verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Now, this is reference to serving God by serving others. So each one of you in the church, that you would show the same earnestness. Why? To have the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, as you earnestly, sincerely serve others, you're serving God, you'll grow in your assurance. Your security will grow. Why? Because your focus isn't on you all the time. You're focusing on others, and there's a security that the Holy Spirit grants as he uses you supernaturally to build up his church. And you grow secure in that. Good works produce assurance of salvation. 
I didn't say good works produces salvation. That is not the case. But good works most certainly produces the assurance of our salvation. In fact, one of the best descriptions is there in your hymnal. Turn to page 857 in the back of your hymnal. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in my view, is probably the greatest human document describing what the Bible teaches. In particular, this chapter. On page 857, chapter 16, the title of Good Works. And that's a great, a great portion to have in this confession. What do good works mean? If they don't save us, as the Reformation so aptly pointed out, and called the church to correct itself regarding, if they don't save us, what part do they play? So the Westminster Confession really takes the scriptures and brings a summary to us that gives us the teaching of the Bible on the matter of good works. Because diligence in your walk with the Lord will build assurance. Look what it says in the second section of chapter 16. These good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. Notice the next part. Strengthen their assurance. Edify their brethren. Adorn the profession of the gospel. Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship they are. Created in Christ Jesus thereunto that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. You see, the reason why good works produce assurance is because you can't do good works in your natural state. If you're quiet with yourself, you know it. So if something does come out of you that is selfless, you have to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit that only works that way in the child of God. It's totally and utterly the sovereign work of God that you would be changed into someone who acts selflessly. In fact, look at the the third section of this chapter, just the first couple sentences. Their ability to do good works, that is the person's ability to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's why I'm confident, not because of what I did, because I couldn't do it if it weren't for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in someone who's born again. That is what gives me assurance. I know how messed up I am. So if I could ever do something selfless, which on occasion happens, I know it's the work of God. And it gives me assurance as his child that he's changing me. Diligence in your walk with the Lord, in particular, serving God by serving others, produces and builds Confidence, assurance. Think for a moment the difference between earnest service and half-hearted service, and I challenge you on this part as I challenge myself. When I give service to others, when I serve God by serving others, am I doing so earnestly, sincerely, with all my heart, or am I kind of giving what I got left? Do I give my time for my own pleasures, and if there's some time left, I give it to God in fellowship with his people? If something else comes up, do I jump to that? Do I forsake the assembling together of the saints because there's something more important? What could be more important? Give my talents for my own gain to enjoy them myself? I'll give a little to God if I've got some time. If it doesn't impinge on my other pursuits, I'll do that. I'll give my money to all sorts of self-fulfillment. If I have any left, well, I'll give God that. I'll work hard at my job, but not at my Sunday school lesson or whatever service I'm committed to in the church. 
You hear, give my time, my talents, my money, my work. We're so far off by even saying my to all those. That's the beginning of the problem. They're all God's. They go to him first. We should work as equally hard at all things God gives us. I'm not suggesting give up your responsibilities to serve others in the church. I'm saying serve others across the board with a whole heart, earnestly. What's the difference between a full assurance and anxious uncertainty? Very simply, full assurance comes from these activities. Anxious uncertainty comes from selfishness. I have never met a person who has come to me who has, and said they're anxious and certain about their standing in the Lord. I've never met someone who claims that and can be found to truly serve, be serving others at the same time. One of the best means of biblical therapy I know when you're having a pity party is to serve someone else. One of the leading causes of depression, despite all the supposed studies, is selfishness. That's why we're so depressed, because all we do is focus on me and my problems and a woe is me, when there's tons of people way worse off than you are. Go serve them and watch how God will change your heart as you see others, as you are used of God to minister to them. It changes you. Diligence in your walk with the Lord will build assurance of salvation. And ultimately, verse 12 tells us, as we have read in other places in Scripture, slow and steady, slow and steady has always marked the Christian life. Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. That is, do these things. Serve God by serving others so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What's the difference between being sluggish and responsive? Serving others. You become sharper, more responsive as you spend time with people and serving them. You start understanding humanity a little better. You're able to read a passage of scripture and better apply it to life when you spend time with people. And as you spend time with them, your responsiveness to say the right word of encouragement, to give the right counsel, to do the right thing is enhanced. You're exercised. As opposed to being sluggish when you're only serving self, it's like the boxer who in the seventh or eighth inning or uh, uh, round is already fading. Their arms, you can see it. They're, they're tough and strong at the beginning, but their arms get lower and lower. And the opponent has more and more chance to get jabs in and get headshots in because the arms come down and they're sluggish and they literally are not sharp and not responsive. That's what selfishness does. It makes us less and less responsive to others. On the contrary, as we serve others, we're more and more responsive to Christ's work in the midst of his people. And we become sharper as a community. You know, this is not just a message, slow and steady wins the race, to you as the individual. This is the message to Redeemer. Slow and steady wins the race. Don't worry about every fad that comes and rolls around. Follow the scriptures, serve each other, and see how over the long haul the Lord builds us up, strengthens us, gives us more influence in this culture. More and more, slow and steady, marks the Christian life. Finally, it ends with this statement, be imitators, or, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, who, who is this author referring to? Now, I can only infer, but I think this is a reference to all those, those characters of the Old Testament, those people of the Old Testament who had lived their life marked with faith and patience. In fact, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, you may be well aware, many of these people are mentioned. These are people that throughout the Jewish tradition, in our tradition now as the church, call our forefathers. And we recognize them. And what is the thing that stands out the most when you think of those people who are being described as ones who had 
Faith and patience in inheriting the promises? What comes to your mind when you think of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, the Israelites, Rahab, several others? You know, patience isn't the first word that comes to mind. Faith isn't the first word that comes to mind. If I take the snapshot of their life, that little sprint they had in their life that wasn't so good. But is that fair? What about the whole of their life? Isn't that what God did in the life of Moses? He had some down times. He had some bad innings. But in the end, God, through faith and patience, faith that he gave, Moses exercised, and patience to see the promises come, ultimately Moses received and inherited the promise. He didn't get to go in the promised land, but he went to the ultimate promised land. Abraham, Noah. Noah, Abraham, Moses, these are old guys when stuff's going on in their lives. Do you think you're old? Have a kid at 110 years old. It's tough on me at 33, 110. Yet faith and patience, slow and steady, is what depicts their life. And what I love about the grace of God is that, yes, Jesus is our ultimate example, but he doesn't throw Jesus' example at us right here. That'd be tough. He says, people just like you, just as messed up as you are, faith and patience, faith and patience, they eventually inherited the promises that Christ secured. That's what the text tells us. When I was a, a, a kid, I was a champion big wheel racer in my neighborhood. We had the biggest, longest driveway, Pastor Nathan will remember, it, three cars wide and about 50 yards long, and the last 12 yards were stone. And you get in your big wheel, and you start at my garage door, and, you would, and it went downhill a little bit, so you would go as fast as you can, and the winner's the one who got into the stones and did a 360 or 180, depending on what kind of machine you had. I won all the time. Now, I was kind of rigged because I practiced all the time, but that's home field advantage. That's the way it goes. I drove a green machine. You know what a green machine is? Remember the green machine? What's happened to them? I can't believe it. What will children do without the green machine? At any rate, it has a single wheel in the middle, Two wheels in the back that are controlled by levers. I'm sure it's too dangerous or something like that. Like these video games are okay, but the green machine's outlawed. At any rate, I drive down the driveway, and just as I get to the stones, I rip the levers, and you do a 360 at least, almost out into the road. What a race. How illustrious to be a big wheel champion. <laughs> you know what? There's then something we know as the Tour de France. That's a bike race going on right now, as a matter of fact. 21 different stages, 23 days to finish. Those who complete this race ride over 3,600 kilometers in total, if they finish. The tour goes through every kind of terrain. Has to be considered one of the most grueling athletic contests in existence. There are times when the participants sprint. There are other times where they're ascending mountains. It looks like they're barely crawling. What's interesting that the winner doesn't have to win every one of those stages to win. In fact, they don't have to win very many of them as long as their time remains consistent throughout. What do you think a better picture of the Christian life is? A big wheel race, sprinting to the end of a driveway, and over with a glorious 360? Or is it something like the Tour de France that takes time, goes over terrains? You don't win every stage, but in the end, you finish. In the end, you receive the reward. What do you think? I would suggest to you that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a sprint on a big wheel down a driveway. Christian life is like a long race through all sorts of terrain. You might lose a stage or two, but God is able to keep you, and he will to the end. Faith and patience over the long haul are what produce confidence in your walk with the Lord.
Simply put, slow and steady wins the race. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word and your encouragement. And Lord, we think of that picture of the marathon as runners are, are running and glasses of water are being put out for them as they go. The same way you give us the word and the sacraments and you give us each other and you give us means of grace that keep us going through this race. We thank you for this. And this morning we partake of these things looking for strength for this race. And Lord, there are surely some here who are discouraged, who feel down and out. Lord, help them to get up and continue on the race. Help us to be sensitive to one another, to help lift someone up who we see has fallen. Or for the fallen, to ask for help, to be lifted up, that we might serve you by serving each other. For we are indeed in a race, O Lord. Give us endurance there unto the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give praise to the one who gives us strength for the race by turning to 167. Let's sing just the first verse.